If you would just bow your heads with me, I feel, uh, I just feel impressed that maybe there's someone here, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything, but I sense, I have a sense in my spirit that uh, there's somebody here that is holding something against someone, and it's, it's hindering you. And God is just saying, just, just give it to me, and I'll deal with them. Just give it to me, and I'll deal with them. And take it out of your hands and put it into mine. So I just want to encourage whoever that is. I'm not going to ask or I don't want to embarrass anybody. But just put that thing in the Lord's hand. Take a deep breath. Let out that breath, and then just say, today is a new day. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Aren't you glad there's a reset in God? We can reboot, start over in God, and that's precisely what we need. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5. We're going to be covering some ground uh, today, so we're going to have to get our track shoes on. And uh, hopefully I won't get too tangled up in side issues, which I tend to do. I think that we've all found, especially as we've gotten older and hopefully wiser, that the root of a lot of our problems uh, is self. Is that there's something in us that we don't want to be there that we didn't even necessarily put there, but it's there, and it needs to be dealt with. And this is what Paul is addressing here in Romans 5, partly, is that he's addressing the problem of self is not tied up in your father, although you thought that. It's not tied up in his father's father, the problem's tied up with his father's father, 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 Adam. Somebody said, do you believe in generational curses? I said, yeah, Adam. <laughs> Adam, uh, that guy. Yeah, I definitely believe in that curse. See, that's our problem is that there's something within us so deep it's even affected our DNA. And there's something in us that wants to address this. And how do we address this? How do we get that deep? How do we get to that place? We, uh, my wife and I, we were youth pastors for, for many years in Fort Smith and had a lot of inner city kids. And, and uh, we would take them on these. Uh, we had three retreats a year. We did a winter retreat, a spring break, and a summer camp. We did our own, and, and so we would take these kids who had never even been out in the woods, and we'd take them out into the woods, and it'd really freak them out. But afterwards, they would, we'd have some awesome God experiences, and, and uh, it, it was just really awesome. But there was one girl, her name was Tadariana, and uh, she was this bold, vibrant African-American girl who was really our first convert, I think, first one to really get saved in our group. And, and she just, some people... I guess dicked her toe in, 
And then some people just dive all the way in, and she dove all the way into Jesus, no looking back. And um, we were sitting around the table, and we'd break off in different uh, groups and just have our own quiet Bible time, trying to establish personal time with Jesus. And as we did that, um, she would uh, pull me to the side and said, Hey, I, I want to uh, ask you something. I've got all these friends at my school that are involved in a lot of immorality. And their response to me is when I try to witness to them, they, she, they always say that they're, they're born this way. And she said, but Pastor Matt, I was reading in John chapter 3. And Jesus said that you must be born again. So, Pastor Matt, they might be born that way, but can't they be born again? I said, well, you said it better than I could say it. Thanks for that. (laughs) Helping me out. But that's the idea here is that to inherit the kingdom of God, we must be born again. We need a new beginning in someone that will save us from Adam. It's our entrance into the kingdom. It's not that being born again is a, new, is a, is a good idea. It's that you must be born again, Jesus says. So it is not just your father. It's deeper than that. It goes all the way back to Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Apostle Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted. Get this, this is really strange. But sin is not counted where there is no law. So odd here. The word counted there, elogeo, combined with the two root words, in, which means exactly that, and logos, which means word or to an account. So the sin's not counted to these. It's not in their account where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So odd here, death is reigning from Adam to Moses, and those who didn't have the law the law or their transgression wasn't counted towards them. So it would seem to this point that it's a blessing to not have the law. Because if I don't have the law, it can't be counted towards me. But what Paul is talking about here isn't merely the law. 
He's talking about death. So from Adam to Moses, people died. So even though there was no law, we still have death. So that when Moses comes, and after the law, we still have death. So even though Adam had received a commandment in the garden, don't eat of this tree, that even though our sinning isn't like that or might be existent to these people that Paul's writing to who hadn't had the law, death is still in the picture. So what the law would attempt to do is deal with sin. But the law only defines what sin is. It doesn't deal with sin. Thus, we still die. So what Paul is talking about here in Romans uh, 5.13 is not that people did not sin. They did. But they didn't break the law of Moses, for it had not yet been given. Nor did they break any spoken law of God, for none had been given to those after Adam. So Paul's point surrounding the context is that these people still died because sin and death passed down from all, to all people from Adam. So in other words, death is the enemy that predates the law. So the law did not address the problem of death. It merely stated what was killing people. So death is reigning. And as Paul's writing Romans, he's writing to this Jew and Gentile congregation. And he's trying to get them all on the same page and, and meld them together. And so as he's writing this, he's saying, you guys are boasting in the law, but death is reigning with or without the law. That the problem isn't law, the problem's death. That's the real issue here. And that is what Paul is trying to deal with. That death is the enemy that is killing people. So how is death reigning? Death is reigning by sin. See, we think the problem is, potentially, we need more laws or more commands. But death precedes the commands. So the law, in a sense, is a diagnosis, but it's not the cure. So Paul is telling all these that are boasting in the law and in their Jewishness and in their background and sticking their chest out, and I'm 14th generational blah, blah, blah. Well, that's wonderful, but death still is reigning. The law is not the answer. The law isn't bad, but it's not the answer. You can get a diagnosis from a doctor and still pass away. That the diagnosis is not the cure. That's what Paul is painting out here. He's saying, look, from Adam to Moses, there was no law, but people are still dying. So the problem isn't the law. The problem is death. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. So get this, Adam was a created being who wasn't God. Did y'all go for that? Okay, I'll go for that. I hope you all go for that, but if you don't, we'll do altar call later. So here's Adam, who's a man. Granted, an innocent man. Not a perfect man or he wouldn't have sinned, but he's an innocent man. No sin. He's got eyes to see God, hands to touch God. He walked with God in the cool of the day, so on and so forth. But this man, Adam, sins, and Adam is the representation of all humanity. In other words, in Adam's loins, you and I existed. Our DNA was in there somewhere, and God knew, as that would extrapolate out, that eventually we'd be here. So we all have our beginning, in a sense, in Adam. We have our beginning in Adam. So what Paul is talking about here, if a man can do that then what and can cause that much damage? What can God do if he takes on human flesh and people begin to be grafted into Christ? That God can undo what Adam did to such a degree that it's not even comprehensible. So no matter what men have done to you, God can take that and make it into something supernatural that does more than just cancel some kind of of debt that puts us in union with himself. Adam was not God and Christ was. So how much more the actions of God to trump the actions of Adam? Therefore, as one trespass, verse 18, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience there were many made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So if we remember accounted, right? Remember that when we went in 13 there, that, the, that even though that the, since the law wasn't there, it wasn't like they were guilty of breaking the law, but yet they were still sinning, so death was reigning even before the law. So in other words, the law is not the answer. But when Paul used that word, he used... Uh, Elageos, which is basically two root words of in, and then logos, which means word. So we can be in logos, in our own account, in our own obedience, in our own strength, or we can be in logos, capital L, the word, in Jesus, the word, the logos that became flesh. So we can be judged by our own account, or we can be in Christ and be judged in Jesus Christ. And so that's what Paul is laying out here. Verse 20, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So in other words, men's attempt at sin to quiet down God and get God to shut up and to get out of the picture, all it did was increase God's passion and His love and led Him to become flesh in order to dwell among us and to take away the problem. So what seemed to be making the problem worse ends up bringing God into the picture all the more. 
Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So before Christ, death is king. And it's reigning by sin. So death is on the throne. But when the king comes and dies on the cross, he dethrones that king and then sets up his own throne at the right hand of God where you are seated with him in heavenly places. So suddenly death is toppled over by Christ's death and because of the reality of sin, the only weapon that Satan had against you was unforgiven sin. He could go to the throne anytime he wanted to tell you, tell God about your unforgiven sin. But when you become in Christ and a new creature in Christ, your sin debt's been nailed to the cross and it's not held against you anymore. So now at this point, there's nothing in Satan's hands that's a weapon against you. All he can do is bring up your past, which has already been defeated in the body of Jesus Christ. Notice Satan never brings up your future to discourage you because he doesn't know what your future is. Jesus Christ knows what your future is, and he's the only one that does. So Christ is calling you into the future, and Satan's trying to call you into the past. So this eternal life, no more death. Now death isn't a reality, because to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. So suddenly death isn't even really death. It's just my last breath here picks up in my next breath face to face with God. So death is no more. You wondered why the first century Christians were so brave and did such great exploits? Because they understood that death is no more. They didn't fear it or run from it. They ran to it because they realized There was no pause between my last breath here and the next breath with Jesus. And my next breath with Jesus would sound so much better than my last breath here. But we've become so materialistic and and in our minds and and haven't seen the beauty and the glory of Christ that we live the opposite way. We hang on to our life with everything within us. But Paul says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is... Right? So what is, what is life? What is this eternal life? John 17, 3, Jesus tells us, this is eternal life. You ready? That you may know him and the one in whom he has sent. Period. So eternal life is relational. Eternal life's not about streets of gold. Because when you really love Christ, he could be in that garbage can out there and you'd go jump in the garbage can. It's not about a place. It's about a person. And this is what Christ is calling us to so that we might know him. The word know there, that's the intimate language. That's marriage language. That's union. Remember when I first met my wife and I had purposed in my heart I was going to kiss her get up here demo what do y'all say no we won't do that we're not going to do that not in God's house (laughs) Uh, and I remember do you remember I don't don't comment I'll just talk 
Okay. Yeah, because she could really hurt my ego. So I remember when we first, remember when we first met in the parking lot of the Missionary Baptist Church? No, we weren't going there. That was just the center place to meet. Uh, I wouldn't go to a Missionary Baptist Church. Not because I don't like them, just because Pentecostal. So I remember after we hung out in our vehicles and the lighted deal, and we hung out and we talked. Afterwards, I remember... Uh, remember, <laughs> and I, I hugged her. I was gonna go in for the kill, but I didn't have the nerve. And so I remember, I, I, I hugged her. This is really weird, but just go with it. And I remember I hugged her, and I just put my head like this. <laughs> First time we met. Okay, that's enough. I told you I would talk. And I just laid my head, I just leaned on her, and then she leaned and went hit back against the car, and she probably thought, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> but in all honesty, it was one of the worst hugs in the history of hugs. <laughs> because I was all in, and she wasn't. But then once we got to know each other, once we got to be closer, suddenly it wasn't like hugging a fence post. We could melt into each other. See what I'm saying? So this is eternal life. That God comes in, and at first, you're like an old fence post. Don't you move on me, God. I'm not going to be embarrassed, you know. And then as you, he wins you over, and suddenly you just melt into him. That I may know you and the one in whom he has sent, that we might melt into each other in union. But now also another problem's here. Sin is abounding, and grace is abounding. So is sin a good thing? <laughs> if you've ever wondered if your sin is cute to the Lord, look at the cross and see the bloody, beaten body of Jesus. And that'll tell you how cute sin is and what its repercussions are. Romans 6, verse 1, and Paul begins to deal with that. What shall we say then? Are we con to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we who would no longer be enslaved to sin. So I have taken up into Christ's death by faith. That as I put my faith in Christ, it wasn't that I'm just beholding Christ on the cross. Suddenly, Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ and I'm being pulled into his death with him 
I'm ethically and legally involved, and it's my judicial position. So in other words, I'm judged in the death of Christ, or I'm judged outside by the death of Christ. So this is positional. If I choose to be judged outside the death of Christ, the death of Christ reflects on my corruption, and I realize what my life and my sin is really all about. It kills God and says, get out of here. But if I'm in Christ, my sin and myself is judged in him. And with his death, my old man goes down and I wake up in a newness of life. And suddenly I've got resurrection power to walk this thing out called life. So one is a judgment in Jesus. The other is a judgment by Jesus. And I want to be judged in Christ, not outside. And I know the... The word of the day is, don't judge me, right? But when we come to God, we're coming to a death. And we're saying, God, judge the heck out of me. Because I don't want anything left if it doesn't look like you. That this is what we've been pulled into. So it's a positional thing that he's saying. Romans 5, he's talking about how Adam's dealt with. In Romans 6, he's pulling us into this reality and saying that our old man has been dealt with. So notice, Paul transitions after he understands his position in Christ. Now, that, this doesn't mean, as we're going to read later in Romans 7, this doesn't mean that, we're, that I'm perfect. Amen, <laughs> right? How many Christians here, right? We're, no, we're not saying we're perfect. But positionally, through the death of Christ, I'm in relationship with God. Because my former sins have been dealt with, and so I've got, and the, the veil's been torn, I've got relationship with God. So in this position, in Christ and in His death, I'm walking in this position in Christ. Even though I'm not that thing yet, in the position, I am that thing. So while I'm not a perfect son or a perfect daughter yet, positionally, I am that thing. So in relationship with God, I'm walking with him, learning to be that thing that I'm in the position of. Is that too much? Might be too much. So positionally, I'm God's son. Present tense, I'm learning to walk this thing out and trusting God with my future because he's the only one who was and is and is to come okay we'll get to that we'll get to that so Paul is transitioning here because now we're saying wow my old man's been crucified in Christ I must he says no there's there's still a struggle here it's just that Paul's wanting us to learn what it is to be what we already are in our position. We're learning to become sons and daughters, even though we already are. So my DNA has changed from Adam to Christ, just like my daughter has our DNA. But she doesn't understand yet what it is to be a perfect daughter. <laughs> Amen. But relationally, through relationship with her father, we're going to try to show her that. And she'll always be a daughter. 
So I am something while I'm not something while becoming something that I am. Maybe. Romans 7, verse 15 through 19. Check this out. Now Paul understands his position, but he's still a little bit troubled and he's working these things out in this letter. Romans 7, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. How many of you ever been there? Wake up in the morning purpose with all your heart. I'm going to be God-like. I'm going to just reflect Christ in everything. And then that guy cuts you off and you spit. Hey, buddy, what's your problem with you? And, and you say, oh, yeah, the Christ thing. I was going to do that. Romans 7, 15, verse 19. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. So suddenly, in his position that he's in, what he used to go with the flow with and like, or not even be on his radar, is suddenly brought to his attention, and he's catching himself doing it, or maybe not even catching himself, but with hindsight saying, why did I do that? Because his desire's going one way, but the reality's going another. So for I do not do, for I do not, for I do, sorry, there's a lot of do's and nots here. For I do, do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Verse 17, get this, crazy. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I'm on a timer. I got to hurry. Turn it off. Give me, hit the snooze. Hit the snooze. I need 10 more minutes. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So Paul here says it's no longer I who does it. What? Paul, do you not understand taking responsibility of your actions? I'm going to start using this on my wife. It's not me. It's the sin that dwells in me. Blame, blame the old man. I'm in trouble. Right? So it's like Paul's saying there's a snake that's been beheaded, but the nerves in it still twitch. And the head can still bite, even though it's separate from the body. Paul's saying that my position in Christ is more of a reality than my flesh nature that's pulling at me. In other words, this sin nature that is in me is not in, is not uh, me anymore. It is a man who has already been put to death in Christ that will not exist as I step forward in my relationship with Christ and will no longer ever be there again when I step into eternity with Jesus. So he's saying, there's this man not fully killed yet in me, but that's not me. And some of you need to realize those struggles and that stuff you're in, that's not you. 
that's an indwelling sin nature that is wrestling with your flesh, was wrestling with your spirit man. And you need to disassociate from that and say, that is not me. I am a new creature in Christ. And I'm going to repent of those sins because that old man is dying, but there's this other desire in me, and that's the way I'm going to walk this thing out by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's like he's saying here, like it's not the real me, it's the part of me that Christ has already condemned to death on the cross. Some of y'all are struggling with this, I know. You want to say, it's me, I did it, I get it. But that's the old you doing that. It's a dead you. Quit living in a dead man's body. Live in the resurrection power of Christ. That's what this thing's all about. So it's like it's not the real me. It's the part of me that Christ has condemned to death and is dying yet is not fully dead. So Paul's saying, I'm in Christ and he is in me. Then the old man is dead and he will not define my personhood anymore. Because I've been set free from Adam, and now I'm into the second Adam, which is Christ Jesus. Kind of like an unreal reality. That though it's real and it really happens, it's not the reality that's going to go forward in God. This is how we should see our brothers and sisters too. When our brothers and sisters harm us, do we just say, that's the old man and that's just who they are? Or do we, like Christ, wash feet and say, you know what? The old man reared its head up there, but I got a sneaking suspicion the Holy Ghost is going to deal with that thing. And the real person's in there, so I'm going to treat them as my brother and sister in Christ, who's a fellow struggler with myself, and that's how I'm going to walk this thing out. Or do we define people and we say who they are? Because we want Christ to define who we are, but do we define who others are? This is where the rubber meets the road. So Paul doesn't want us to see our lives as disconnected from God's death, but intertwined to his death. That leads us to resurrection and true life. So in other words, we're basically dying to a lie. We're dying to the lie that we make ourselves and we determine who we are. We're dying to that whereby we might find ourselves in the death of Christ that we'd lead to life. See, the cross is the death that exposes the lie that people are good and God is bad. And that we make ourselves and we don't need God. It's this, uh, this pushing out of God, which doesn't work. Our pushing out of God ends up crucifying him, which leads him to rise from the dead, to never die another death. So basically our attempt to get rid of God made it to where we could never get rid of him ever again, that he would rule and reign on the throne forever. So God wins, ha ha. So that we would die to our predisposition and to our illusions and come to the place of reality and realize the real us in God. So Jesus is and was and is to come so that the man of grace that's on the inside of us that God is pulling out is not a lie. It's the only thing that really is because it's the only thing that's going to exist eternally with God. That other stuff's going to die off and be out here somewhere in outer darkness. The sin nature will be removed. So 
really the grace reality, even though it seems like a lie, well, God, I'm really not this thing like Paul said. I seem to do the things, but even though I got the desires, I seem to do the opposite. God's saying, no, 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 those desires are leading you back to me, and that's making you into the one who I'm going to make you into through this process of relationship. So the man of grace isn't the lie that's in us. The lie is like Paul. It's not I who sin. It's this other part that's been condemned in Christ and will one day be fully out of my body. So, when we think about who we are and what we've tried to create is not real, just like God is the only real reality, you can't have reality without God. So if I say God doesn't exist, it's like with the air that he's given me to breathe, I'm using it to say he doesn't exist. It's kind of like I'm living in an unreality while borrowing from a reality. It's like sin is the absence of God in something. The absence of something is nothing. So it's like sin is this unreal reality. So basically this, I can have light without darkness, but I can't have darkness without light. So if there's darkness, that must mean that there's light. So though I can put my hand up here in front of a light and you see a shadow on the wall, yeah, it's a reality, but it's really not there. It's an unreal reality. So Paul's saying the unreal realities are being dealt with, and that's not your reality. And your reality is who you are in Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate reality. So it's like darkness is the absence of light. And that's why I believe that when talking about sin, the the gospel writers talk about this mystery of lawlessness. Because it's a mystery for something to exist and cause damage, but yet at the same time be judged and be no more at the same time. It's kind of like God speaks and things happen, but then a serpent speaks and something else happens. It's kind of weird. It's like the absence of a good seems to stop God. Shadow or an unreality stops reality. But then God enters into men's illusions that they're in control and that their kingdoms matter and that their religious ideas matter, and he submits to them, and he's crucified by them, and in that death, he blows up their illusions that their religion and their governments matter, and through that establishes a kingdom that is actually forever. And I wish we had people as passionate about the kingdom of God as they do about their party lines and their personal parties. Because when you hear, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, is that poetry to you? Or do you hear every governmental system coming to a crashing end and us entering into the monarchy that is Christ and we rule and reign with him forever? We better hear those things crashing in the backdrop. Those are necessary evils, but they are evils nonetheless. So Jesus dies on a tree to free us from the absence of of reality, where we would stop making ourselves in our own image and say, God, you make me and yours the only real reality. 
So a person without God is really a figment of their own imagination. A refusal to come to terms with their own creation. Whose image they're actually made in. And what I'm noticing is, I want to be careful here, I want to be compassionate, but I want to be truthful. The evil of same-sex marriage is not just the sin. The evil is it attempts to redefine the image of God. Because in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. And he created them, and they created them. You see, the pronouns there are we pronouns. They're they pronouns. They're relational. So that the image of God would be framed between a man and a woman, this diversity, and in that diversity would create unity, and through that life would create another. So it's a Trinitarian dynamic. If you break life down into an atom, what do you have? Protons, electrons, neutrons. Three. It's all bound together with us language and we language. And so when we accept these things, we're really saying, God, that's not your image. It's kind of like when Saddam Hussein had got overthrown and they tied onto their statue, his statue, and pulled it down. Remember that? It's like this footage of this big statue. They're like saying, I'm tearing the paintings off the wall, but this never really happened. When people try to redefine the nature and image of God, it's like a rebel coming into a palace and taking a picture off a wall and saying, that's not the image. It's like using your breath that we talked about earlier, given by God to say there is not a God. So one was and is and is to come. Do you know what the Revelation 17, 11 says about the Antichrist? He was and is. Who knows the rest? And is not. But the Antichrist, or instead of Christ... And not just some Romanian dictator that's got a tattoo on his head. Oh, you've never seen it. Okay, cool. But this spirit that John said exists today. The spirit of Antichrist is there in his day. So that when we are without Christ, we were, we are, but we are not. But when we're in Christ, we were, we are, and we will be. It's like God is dealing with the beast in you and in me. What doesn't live in a relationship with God and by his commands? The animal kingdom. They're purely instinctual. So when we do away with God, we're mere beasts looking at who we might devour, much like Satan is a beast. Just something created, but that's yet not eternal. 
So our false self, we're coming to a close here. Our false self swallowed up in Jesus to reveal our eternal self. So we have started to be who we will be in eternity with Christ. So Colossians chapter 3, this is my last four verses here. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden where? So where's your life? So we keep our eyes on Christ, because that's where our life is, with Christ, in God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Don't want to see one more cool thing? Take about two minutes. You got the time? Go give me two minutes. Raise your hand. Two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve. Oh, twenty. I got twenty. Okay. No, I'm kidding. That's the oldest preacher joke. I can't believe I just used it. Forgive me for using that. I said I would never use that. Check this out. So, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Okay, that's Greek language there. This was a Hellenistic culture, so it was written in a language that everybody could understand. Jesus is Hebrew. And so if Jesus would have been saying this to Hebrews, he would have said, I'm the Alf and the Ta. Okay? Now, so that would be his beginning and end, or the first letter and last letter. So I want you to look at this. I think we've got a slide of this, Kevin. I didn't think I'd get to it, but... Now, it's not in backwards order. They didn't read from left to right. They read from right to left, okay? Semitic cultures. So Jesus says, I am the beginning, the alpha or the alf, and the ta. What does that look like, the end? <laughs> so Jesus says, I'm the beginning and the end. The end of what? The end of me and you and the image that we have created for ourselves. The end of all things. This ancient picture looks like a mark where you would put two sticks to indicate where something is. Maybe a hidden treasure of sorts. This picture of these two cross sticks and this letter has meanings of mark and sign and signature. And while the modern Hebrew has completely changed this up, this would have been how it would be originally written. And in Christ, there is a beginning. And what put an end to all things, the reign of Satan, my sin, my self, false self, my everything, 
That's the end of it all. So in the cross, it's over. Yes, you're in the struggle. Yes, you're going to have to fight tomorrow when you get up. You're going to have to fight in a car, maybe with your wife on the way home. And you're going to say, that teaching was all false. But I'm telling you, the battle's already been won. We're just watching this whole thing play out. So don't be discouraged. Keep your head up. Keep walking forward in God. Because your best days are ahead. And in Christ, it's over. It's the end. It's all over. Let's pray. God, we just...